Hi. 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 My name's Matt. Matt Beham. I am from San Antonio, Redeemer San Antonio. I have been there for 11 years now. I'm the assistant pastor of youth and children. And, um, and this is like my second time at RYM Florida, but probably the... 15th class that I've taught at, uh, at RYMs. I've been teaching for a long time, mostly in Colorado and in Texas. And uh, Tulip, this is the second time I've taught Tulip, so I'm kind of excited to teach it to you guys. Um, and I have a wife named Haley, and Haley and my kids, Elliot, my daughter, who is four and a half, and my son, Graham, are hanging out at Babu and Shushu's house. That's Haley's family. And uh, anyone have a cooler name for their grandparents than Babu and Shushu? Oh, Grandma and Grandpa. That is pretty cool. That's what I call my grandparents. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I'm excited to be here with you guys today. And um, we're talking about Tulip. Who has any... Who knows what Calvinism is? Most of you? Who is, okay, for whom is this the first time ever talking about Calvinism? Yeah, okay, cool. I'll try to make it nice. And Yeah, maybe you're like... I think so, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. That's cool. Okay, I'll try to make it really accessible for you guys. Please feel free. This is a smaller group. You can ask lots of questions, um, and I'll try to answer them. And, uh, and if I don't like your question, then I'll answer the question I thought you should have asked. Um, no, I'm just joking. But uh, as we get started, let me, uh, let me open us with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this group of students. Lord, thank you for um, your sovereign grace um, that you have called the people to yourself elected them and chosen them, died for them, and uh, regenerated our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in the knowledge of who you are and love for you. Lord, open our minds and our hearts to understand the things being taught here today. Please be with me as I try to teach um, these, uh, these mysteries in a way that's accessible and, uh, and, and helpful to these students to bring them ultimately to love you more. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, Calvinism, Tulip, the joy of Calvinism. I have to admit, the first day is not very joyful. I'm going to give you a lot of bad news about who you are. Um, But we will get into joy after we move through the bad news. And um, in order to give you a little bit of uh, hope for this class, this class is going to hopefully do two things for you. It's going to hopefully do two big things for you. It's going to help you to see the bigness of God. The bigness, if I could even say this, the Godness of God. Um, to help you see how holy and high and lifted up, how strong and how mighty He is. We want you to get a vision for this God that we so often just treat like our friend or our helper. Now, He is our friend and our helper. But He's our friend and our helper only because He is the great God of gods and Lord of lords who has written this beautiful story, this narrative for you that is all based on the redemption that He's accomplished accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. So we want God, the real God, to to be so big in our eyes that it would lead us to worship Him as He is. So that's one hope that I have for you in this class. The second hope that I have for you in this class is I really want you to come and to see Calvinism and what especially 
Calvinism comes from Calvin, John Calvin, who really cared to show us the assurance of faith or the assurance of our salvation that we have in God. So I want you to, throughout the course of this week, say, especially if you're doubting your salvation, do I believe enough? Have I done enough good things? Does God love me enough? I want you to see, after the three days of this class, well, I am assured of my salvation before my Father because it is His never-ending, unrelenting love for me. That's why I'm a believer, not primarily how much I love Him. It's all about God's salvation that He has wrought for you. So I want you to see the bigness of God and I want you to have assurance in your hearts that God has really saved you. I want those things for you. Some of the particular questions that this class is going to start to ask and answer. Um, Why are you a Christian at all? Was it a choice that you made or was it a choice that God made? How do you know that you're a Christian? We know that some people call themselves Christian, but how do you know? How can you be assured that you're a Christian? What's the relationship between what you're supposed to do in salvation and what God has done in salvation? Is it God's work or is it my work? How do those fit together? Did Jesus come to just make salvation possible for you? Or did Jesus come to eternally secure your redemption? What does the Holy Spirit do? Who is He? And what does He do when it comes to your salvation? Can I ever lose my salvation? Once I'm in the Father's hands, can I ever fall out or jump out? Will I slip through His fingers or will He eternally hold me in His hands? Those are some of the particular questions we're going to be asking. And I need to give you, um, I need to give you a couple of minutes of background in order to do this. One of the big things that that happened in the Protestant Reformation. Ooh, who is the guy who kind of started the Protestant Reformation? Martin Luther, good. In the year, oh, it might be printed? 1517, and he nailed 95, what did he nail? Theses, yeah, against the Wittenberg door. My German accent's not very good. Um, and uh, these, he basically was saying, hey, Catholic Church, or hey, Church, as it was back then, hey, Church, there's some problems that I have. And there was a number of problems that he had with the Catholic Church based on, his, based on oh, what the Bible tells us we should do things differently. Um, and a number of things, justification by faith and uh, the selling of indulgences. One of the big things that the Protestant Reformation started sparking in people's lives was it seems that the Catholic Church is dispensing salvation in some way, whether through communion or indulgences or, the, or baptism, removing original sin, or a number of other merits of the church. The Reformers were like, hold on a second. Salvation isn't in the church's hands. Salvation is in whose hands? God's hands. And so as they read the Bible and responded to some of the things that were happening in the church at the time, they said, oh my goodness, salvation is truly and fully, as the Old Testament prophets said over and over again, of the Lord. Salvation is not vested in the apparatus of the church. Salvation is of the Lord. And so what these reformers realized was was this. 
It's not that God makes 99 steps towards us and we make one step towards Him. It's not that God makes three steps to us and we make one step towards Him. It's not that we in our salvation have something to do in our salvation besides receiving it by faith. It's that God and God alone is the author and perfecter of our salvation and our faith. Salvation is fully and completely in God's hands. That's some of the things that they started to learn. Now, that gets a little difficult for some people. It gets a little difficult for some people because humanity, and you probably know this as Americans, we want to hold on to our ability sometimes, don't we? We want to say, no, I I want power. I want power in my life. And so there are a group of people that followed a guy named Jacob Arminius who said, now wait a second, Calvin and Reformers. You're saying that salvation is holy and completely of the Lord, but we're a little uneasy with that. We're a little uneasy with that. So we want to make just a few little changes to the way that you're thinking about what salvation is. Those little changes are summed up and this is a very quick summary. You can read tons of, you can read big books about this. But those, these changes that the Arminians wanted to make, Arminians followers of Jacob Arminius, are summed up on this little handout right here under the five points of Arminianism. And what I'm going to do, because it's helpful to understand what Calvinism is, it's helpful to read these five points and then the five points of Calvinism that are responding to those five points. So the Arminians said, no, 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 humans have some ability or some will. We have some ability in our salvation. And uh, here's the five points they said. They first said human ability. Although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, like Adam's death, right, fall into sin, man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it is put before him. He has the ability to believe. Conditional election. God's election of those who shall be saved is prompted by His foreseeing that they will of their own accord believe. In other words, God's election is based upon what man is going to do, not based upon God's choice. General atonement. Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. Christ's redemption becomes effective only if man chooses to accept it. Resistible grace. Man is never so completely controlled by God that he cannot reject him. In other words, God's grace can be resisted. You can say no to his grace. Lastly, falling from grace. Those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith. Now, if you look at these five points, the thread that runs through them is that ultimately speaking, man has the final decision when it comes to salvation. So in other words, if God says, I want to save this guy right here with the great RUF shirt on. I want to save him. This guy in Arminian's position can say, no, you cannot save me. This makes human choice predominant over God's choice. But if we know anything about who God is, God is the one who ultimately is free to choose, not humanity. And this is what the Reformers said in response to Jacob Arminius' followers. They said this, 
And we're going to start with total depravity today, but I'm going to read them all. Total depravity. Every faculty, that is your intellect, your emotions, and your will, what you do, of a person is affected by sin, and therefore man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel. Two, unconditional election. God's choice of certain individuals to salvation is not dependent on any foreseen faith or virtue on their part. Three, limited atonement. Christ's atoning death actually secured the salvation of those that God has elected for salvation. Four, irresistible grace. All those whom God has chosen for eternal life will come to faith. 5. Perseverance of the saints. All of those chosen by God to salvation will persevere to glorification. Now what the five points of Calvinism is saying is that ultimately speaking, God and God alone is the author of salvation. If He chooses to save, He will bring it about to completion. Okay? If He chooses to save, He will bring it about to completion. And the reason that this is incredibly important... The reason this is incredibly important is because all things, all of this, all of these ideas flow out of this first point called total depravity. So what we're going to do today is we're going to say, okay, what state am I in without God? Am I in a place where I can, where I'm sick, but I can still reach out and grab God, or am I in a place where I am dead? and in absolute and utter need of God to make me alive. Total depravity says that you are ultimately in a state where you are dead and you need God to ultimately make you alive. So we're going to jump in right now to total depravity. Well, actually, we're going to jump in in one second. Are there any questions about that preamble, that kind of historical background, some of the ideas going on in, in, uh, in TULIP? Any questions up to this point? Y'all, you all got it. No big deal. It's a little tough. Stick with it, okay? It's going to get really biblical and really clear as we jump into total depravity. Okay, the five points really flow from this first point, total depravity, which is a description of who humanity is in their sin. Depravity simply means corrupt, immoral, sinful, messed up. What the first point says is that man is totally corrupted by sin. That does not mean that you are utterly corrupted by sin in the sense that only all you're trying to do is kill people all the time. Like if you were utterly corrupted by sin, you would all have a knife in your back pocket and would be looking to kill people, right? Like you're not completely and utterly depraved. You're totally depraved. And the distinction is is that every part of you has the stain of sin so that your heart is moving away from God. Every part of you has this stain of sin. In other words, you're not sinners because you sin. You sin because there's something evil in your heart and you are a sinner. Your sin comes out of the sinfulness of your heart. The Bible's word for every part of you is your heart, so that Proverbs 4.23 describes the heart as the wellspring of life. And so what we need to do in order to establish total depravity is we're going to look at what does the Bible say about your heart? What does it say about your heart? 
And in order to do that, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to go through a number of verses. You can find them printed on your handout on the second page. Genesis 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Okay, so up to this point, we had uh, Adam and Eve fell in chapter 3. Chapter 4, Cain kills uh, Abel. There's increasing corruption on the earth, and it reaches a crescendo. It gets so bad that Moses says, this is what the Lord saw when He looked at humanity. Who's turned there and wants to say it nice and loud for us? What is humanity like, God? Genesis 6, verse 5. You want to read it? Loudly, can you do it? Great, go for it. Just verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. (laughs) Okay, what is every every inclination, inclination of the thoughts of humanity's heart is what? Evil. Some of some of his thoughts were evil? No. Every Intention, every inclination. My translation says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention evil. Not just sometimes, but continually. All the time, evil completely. Wow! Humanity is in a bad spot in Genesis chapter 6. And so do you guys remember what God's going to do? In His just wrath, He does what? He sends a flood. He sends a flood and He destroys mankind. He's completely just to do this because mankind is evil. Hating each other and hating God. But then there's a note of... There's a positive note that comes. Somebody gets saved and some family gets saved. Do you remember which family gets saved? Yeah, Noah. Noah and his family get saved. And so if you're reading the story of Genesis for the first time, you're thinking, oh, okay. So... So, humanity's evil, but there's this one guy who's righteous, who's found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Good. Maybe God is going to restart with somebody good. And so that all of humanity from this guy's goodness is going to become good. Okay, so the flood comes and it destroys the earth and every creature that has breath dies. And then the ark lands on Mount Ararat, we think. The family gets out of the ark and Noah then offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God and they're all, all the family is going to get around and going to celebrate and eat this sacrifice and it's going to be a wonderful time. They're going to celebrate God's redemption of this family and you're like, okay, here comes the restart. But then in Genesis 8.21, after they get out of the ark and give this... Uh, this sacrifice, it says this, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in His heart, I will, never get, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God repeated something that He said in Genesis 6, chapter 5. Did the flood change Noah's heart? No. In fact, we see that Noah is just as evil as all the other people. And this gives us a little hint. It's not... Salvation is not based on any goodness or ability in the human person. Salvation is based fully and solely on the grace and loving kindness of the Lord. Our hearts are still evil and wicked. So if we have any hope of being saved, God must do something. 
And it goes on in other portions of the Bible. Ecclesiastes 9, 3. There is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Solomon, in his great wisdom, is looking at the human heart and saying, Man, the human heart is fallen, corrupted, and evil. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now the implication here is twofold. One is only God can see the depths of our evil in our hearts. Only God can see it. You can't even see how evil your heart is. So like, let's, let's think of an illustration here. If I held up a mirror, if I held up a mirror to you, would you recognize yourself? Yeah, yeah, you would all recognize yourself in the mirror, right? Now, what if the mirror was a slightly different kind of mirror? What if the mirror was a moral mirror? And what it showed was not your outward visage. What it showed was the inner disposition of your heart. If I held that mirror up to you and you looked at, looked at it and you saw who you were in the inside, you would recoil. You'd say, wow, that's me? That is evil and disgusting. I can't believe that my sin has so corrupted my moral character that I am like that. You would turn away. Mark 7, 21 and 23. Um, that's the second book, Mark, Matthew, Mark, second book of the New Testament. Will someone turn to that and read that so I can get a quick sip of water? Read it nice and loud for me. Mark chapter 7, verse 21, verses 21 through 23. Anyone? Anyone? All right. Nice and loudly, please. 21 through 23? Yep. For from within, out of men's hearts, comes, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Man, so... Um... What, what Jesus is saying here is that it's out of the dispositions of your inner being that come all of this evil and yucky stuff. Now, we, we find that hard to believe, don't we? I mean, okay, who among you, when you've done something bad, has said, well, I just had low blood sugar? Have you said that? I just haven't eaten enough today. Or, you know what, I, 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 I'm just really tired. I haven't slept enough. Or, you know what, I'm really stressed. I've got this big test coming up. And, uh, and I've been studying for it all week, and so like I'm just going to be mean, and like you're just going to have to deal with that. We've all kind of said those things, haven't we? But, but the reality is, the reason that, you are, that you've done evil and are mean and are unkind to people is not because of all of these external factors. It's because of the disposition of your heart. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus suffer low blood sugar? He sure did. He went for 40 days and 40 nights without eating anything. And did He sin? 
No. Did Jesus ever get anxious? Remember, He was sweating drops of blood before He went to the cross. He was anxious for His life, not in a sinful way, just because He knew the external factor that was coming upon Him and He was worried about it. And He prayed to His God. And did He sin? No. He was hungry. He was anxious. He endured sleepless nights. He would stay up all night and pray. All night and pray. He would have people crowding around Him all the time. Thousands of people sometimes. Always demanding His time and His energy. And did He sin against those people? Because His heart was beautiful and good and kind. Out of the goodness and beauty of His heart, good things proceeded from Jesus at all times. But out of your evil hearts, it's not because of your low blood sugar or your anxiety. It's not because you're tired or you're an introverted and you've just been around people too long or you're extroverted and you just do crazy things at parties. It's not because of those things. It's because your heart is sick and fallen that you do evil things. That's just how it works. My daughter loves Frozen. And I know all of you love the movie Frozen. I know you all love the movie Frozen. And there's a, there's a song in Frozen sung by the trolls. And the trolls sing, People make bad choices when they're sad or scared or stressed. Y'all remember that? Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah. Come on, I know you know those lyrics. People make bad choices when they're sad or scared or stressed. And I want to say to the trolls, no. People don't make bad choices when they're sad or scared or stressed. People make bad choices because from the core of their beings, they're bad. That's why people make bad choices. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling us right here. John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Here we see the most beautiful human being that has ever lived who is kind to people, who loves people, who beckons people to follow him in his pursuit of God and goodness and purity. And people looked at the light and they recoiled because they wanted to stay in darkness. They wanted to stay in darkness. Ephesians 4, 17-19 So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness." One of the things that Paul is saying here is all of your minds and your consciousness are defiled and your heart is hardened. One of the images given to us in Scripture is that your heart is hard. It doesn't beat with goodness anymore. It's calloused and stone. It doesn't have empathy for others or care about others. When I was a, uh, when I was a child... Uh, when I was in seventh grade, any seventh graders in the room? Anyone going in seventh grade? I I remember distinctly, I remember distinctly being hit with a soccer ball in a place that you're not that is not good to be hit with when you're a guy, especially. And did everyone run over to me and say, "Oh, Matt, are you okay? How are you doing? What did they do?" They circled around. I just remember laying on the ground, writhing in pain, and a circle of of little seventh graders was pointing at me and laughing. One of the things that C.S. Lewis says is that we just, our affections are so off. We laugh at things that are awful and sad. And, we, and we're happy when, with, with things that are ugly. 
and evil. Everything about us is just off when it comes to goodness and beauty in this world. A simple example of what your hearts are like is that your hearts are like a broken compass. Your hearts are like a broken compass. They sh- our, a human heart should be pointing towards God. Jesus' heart was always pointing towards God. My will is to do my Father's will who sent me. He always wanted to please His Father. A human heart should always be pointing to God. But because of our sin, our compass, the compass of our heart is broken. And for some people, the compass is maybe a little off. You're decent people. You kind of try to do the right thing. But it doesn't matter. If you follow a broken compass, it will always lead you in the wrong direction. Some people's compass is like really off. Like I would say like Hitler's compass, that's super off, right? But his compass led him in the wrong direction too. And one of the things I'm trying to say here is, yeah, Jesus acknowledges that there are worse things to do, right? Like it's worse, it's worse to kill someone than it is to hate someone. But at the end of the day, if you hate someone in your heart, it's just like you've killed them. Because your broken compass is leading you on that path towards murder anyways. So that, yeah, there are gradations. Jesus said it's better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for these two cities, Bethsaida and Corazon, on the Day of Judgment. There's a difference in things. Like, Don't say, like, oh, I'm falling in my sin, so I'm just going to go murder people. No, don't do that. There's a difference in badness. But at the end of the day, you follow a broken compass long enough, you're going to be in the wrong spot, just like the person whose compass is really broken. We We are off, and we are not aiming towards God. So when you think about yourself, don't compare yourself to other people. Well, I don't have as many sins as they do. You need to see yourself in the same place as everyone and say, Oh, I'm in my sin, I'm just I'm heading away from God. I'm heading away from God. Total depravity says that ultimately speaking, you want to be God. You want to call the shots in your life. You want to supplant the one person who created you and be and be the one who is in control of your life. You want to follow the serpent into sin and you want to say, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my own destiny. Right? And this is why this is why all the problems in our world are not going to be solved with like just get people more water or why can't people be nicer to each other or why can't we just educate people better the problems in our world are not problems horizontally or sociologically that's a big word the problems in our world are not problems with me and this world or me and people the problems of this world ultimately are about how I'm relating to God because if I hate God and I'm running away from God then I'm also going to hate people who have been made in the image of God if you do something fun and you, if you're a nerd like me, and you do something fun, you type in um, uh, dictators educated in the West. It's really interesting. You'll find that so many of the 20th century dictators who killed like all of their people, and 21st century dictators like the dictator of Syria, uh, Egyptian dictators and generals, you'll find that so many of them that, that have com- committed terrible atrocities in this world were educated at places like Oxford and Cambridge and London School of Economics and prestigious universities in America and the Sorbonne, which is like one of the greatest universities in France. And you realize that the problems in this world are not problems 
of education, horizontal problems, or problems of just we just need to be nice to each other. The problems in this world ultimately stem, every single one of them, from our relationship to our God, to our God that is broken. So, if, uh, if I'm giving you another illustration here, uh, I used to go hiking. I used to live in Scotland. And the reason I say that is because I like to, every once in a while, go into a Scottish accent just to make sure you're listening to me. And when I lived in Scotland, we would go hiking. And when we were hiking in Scotland, we brought our water bottles. And we would hike around and we'd see a stream. And then we'd dip down and the stream looked beautiful, didn't it? So we dipped down into this pure stream and we'd drink from the stream and it was fine. Well, one time, the guide on our... I'll stop. The guide on our hike... The guide on our hike said, Stop! Don't do it! What he saw just upstream of us, just around the bend, was a dead deer. And that dead deer was putrefying the water. And if we would have stopped and drank from that, that river, it would have been really, really bad for us. We would have been puking our guts out, right? And just like this stream that is putrefying and filthy, you guys look great. You look really sweet and really nice. But under the surface, out of the wellspring of your hearts, and my heart is flowing in us an evil that is ultimately corrupting ourselves and corrupting everything around us that we touch. This is total depravity. This is a tragedy because once we were pure and good and righteous in Adam, but now because of his sin, we are ugly and horrors. So, this is kind of depressing. Are y'all are y'all finding joy in Calvinism yet? So much joy. And it, we, what we need to do in the next kind of 15 minutes before we get out of here is answer this last question. We've got to zoom in a little bit more. And say, okay, if this is true, if I'm fallen like this, the answer that we need to, the question that we need to answer is, can I choose God? Can I choose God? If this is true, Matt, do I have the ability to reach out to the one source of truth and goodness and purity and choose Him? What total depravity says and what the Bible says is no, you cannot reach out to Him. You cannot choose Him. He's got to do something for you. So let's look at Romans 8, 6-8. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Can the hostile mind submit to God's law? No, it cannot. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. If you are in your sin, can you please God? No. No. Let's go on. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In your sin, are you alive or dead? Dead. 
So, illustration, simple illustration. You come in here and you're like, hey Matt, do you want to play basketball with me? I want to play basketball with you and I'm really, really, really sick. I'm really sick. But because I really like you and I really like basketball, I might pick myself up and drag myself out to the basketball court because I'm here to hang out with you. Right? Now let's say you came into this room and I was lying on the floor dead. And you said, Matt, do you want to play basketball with me? What would I say? Nothing. Nothing. I wouldn't hear you. I couldn't do anything. I wouldn't respond to you. I would be dead. (laughs) That's a silly and simple example. But what Paul is saying is that in your sin, outside of the work of God, you are dead. 1 Corinthians 2.4 The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Can you understand the things from God? No, you cannot. Jesus, He says it so strongly in John chapter 6 that a large portion of His disciples just leave Him. This is what he says to his disciples in John. There's a difference between disciples and apostles. The apostles are those, you know, 12 that are called. Disciples were a larger group of people who were following him. They, like, tons of them left him after he said this. He says this in John chapter 6 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He goes on to say, This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. He finally says in verse 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Three times Jesus says, You can't come to me, you can't come to me, you can't come to me unless God the Father does something. Jeremiah 13.23 Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. If you are evil, you cannot do good. A good tree produces good fruits. Jesus says a bad tree produces bad fruits and cannot but produce bad fruit. So the million dollar question for a for a Calvinist is, can I choose God? The answer is, no, I cannot. No, I cannot. In my sin, I would run away from God every single time. In my sin, I run away from God every single time. And so, the I don't actually have this written in your notes for the zoomed in part, but I think it's a great summation. Romans 3, 9 through 18. We can um, turn there now. Romans 3. They'll all go there and I'm going to read it loud and clear to us. This is talking about who you are in your sin and who I am in my sin. Romans 3, verses 9 through 18. Y'all ready? Almost. Romans 3, verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's Paul's way of saying everybody, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How many people do good? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. Everything we touch turns to ash. That's what he's saying. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This clinching verse that Paul is trying to get us to understand, these verses, is saying you are so dead in your sin that everything you do and everything you touch turns to ashes. Only ugliness emanates from you. And so, what? that is so depressing. That is so depressing, Matt. And I'm going to get to why this is important in one second. Are there any questions up until this point that I can make, help you make a little bit more clear? Yeah. So if God chooses certain people, um, then where does that lead sort of the rest of humanity and love and faith? If God chooses certain people, where does that leave the rest of humanity? Can you put a star by that question and ask me that tomorrow when I do election? It's a great question. You're just zooming ahead. I love it. It's only when we... Are there any other questions? And I'll try not to make your question... I'll try not to kick you forward to tomorrow. But are there any other questions up to this point about total depravity? Okay. You're like, okay, I hate it. I hate it, but I don't have any questions about it. Here's why it's important. You need to know the bad news, the really, 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 really bad news before you can hear the incredible news of the gospel. We need to hear the really bad news of your condition before God before we can hear the incredible news of the gospel. Do you remember what we sang? He knows the depths of my heart and what? He loves me the same. He knows the depths of my heart and He loves me the same. So one of the things that we see in God's salvation is God doesn't look upon a sick person or a kind of sometimes good, sometimes bad person. God is looking upon evil people. People who are at the depths or the bottom and He says, you know what, I, will, I love that person. And I am going to do something for that person that that person cannot do for themselves. And so when Paul says you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, he goes on to say in Ephesians 2.4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which I loved them, made them alive together with Christ, for it is by grace that you have been saved. When we see that we are completely unable to save ourselves, we will see the amazing grace and love and kindness of our God who comes to us in love and changes our hearts and saves us. He, will make, he takes what was once dead and putrefying and rotting and makes it life and beauty and grace and peace all because He loves us. All because He loves us. When we understand the depths of our sin, we will love God our Father so much more for the love that He has for us in the redemption of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do in the next couple of days is we're going to look at the way He does that. The way He makes us alive by the Father electing some to salvation, the Son dying for those people whom God has elected and the Holy Spirit 
sealing that redemption to our hearts so that we will be preserved until the end. Um, are there any final questions before I let you guys out of here just a couple of minutes early? If this seemed a little difficult, this is the most theological class that you can take today. It's, it's really theological. I get that. I don't expect that you will just understand everything right away. Part of the learning process is to hear things over and over and over again. Part of the learning process is to go and look at those verses for yourselves, to ask your leaders, like, hey, what does this mean? Like, it's okay that you're like, okay, this is a lot. I'm drinking from a fire hose, and I just want to—I just want you to slowly grow in your knowledge, and that's what one of the things that this class is for. Um, so please ask lots of questions, think about it, go and digest this. Let me pray for us, and I'll let you go. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word, Lord. It is a hard pill to swallow—the reality of our humanity—and I pray. Um, uh, Lord God, that You would show us the goodness and grace of our Savior Jesus. Would we love Him more? Would we see You as a big God who has overcome every obstacle to bring us salvation? Lord, I pray for these students. I pray that they would wrestle with these things. Would they grow in the knowledge of who they are and so that they can grow in the knowledge of who You are. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.